When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Poddleters. I hope you're well. In this week's episode, I speak to Rutger Bregman. He is a historian and author, and I'm sure if you listen to this podcast regularly, you will have heard me mention his book, Utopia for Realists, multiple times. So it really was very exciting to get the chance to pick his brain. Um, Unlike pretty much anyone else I've interviewed, Rutger said he was pretty happy with everything he'd learned in school. Um, But that's mostly because he doesn't really think our schools are fit for purpose as they are, and that's something that we discuss in this episode. He did send me over his three things, which were French, German a bit of, mindful, bit of mindfulness and most importantly more freedom to follow his own curiosity and rely on intrinsic motivation so we discussed that quite a lot um, as well as the importance of diverse communities and why humans are actually really kind deep down if you're interested in that kind of thing his latest book Humankind actually covers a lot of what we talk about obviously in much more depth um, so if you're looking to learn more then I would really recommend that um, yeah I really enjoyed this episode so I hope that you enjoy listening to it as well bye Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Rutger Breckman. Hey there, great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to be talking to you. Um, I don't know, you probably might not have listened to my podcast, but I read your book, Utopia for Realists, right at the beginning of this year. Uh-huh. And I think ever, ever, every episode since then, I've brought it up. <laughs> so when I emailed you... Really? Yeah, oh really? my God, it, I, it really had such a big impact on me. So when I emailed you and you emailed me back in like 20 minutes, I'm like, sure, I'd love to do this. Oh, I've never been so excited. So thank you so huh. much. So it's not out of date yet. You, you feel it's still relevant because it's actually a quite, it's quite an old book. You know, I wrote it in... 20, 2014 in Dutch, and it was translated in English in 2017. But I'm, I'm very excited to hear that it's still relevant. <laughs> I think, uh, do you know what's so funny? I've actually been meaning to read it, read it for years because everyone who I know has read it. And I almost felt like I kind of had read it because everyone was talking about it so much. And then I had a guest mm. on called Shona Virtue, who's um, an amazing woman, who's my friend. And she was like, you have to read this book. And I was like, right, I'm going to get it and I'm going to buy it. And I was like, God, I can't believe I haven't read this before. I, I don't think it felt out of date. I think, I think if anything, Thing at this moment in time when everyone's kind of in crisis mode and everything feels very damning, especially with our government and everything that's going on, because mm. it's such a hopeful book, it was like the best, mm-hmm. the best tonic, especially at the start of this year when mm. we were back into lockdown. It just, it was amazing. So no, I don't think it's irrelevant yet. You've got a few more years in it, I think. Mm. <laughs> okay, great. Well, that's good to hear. So for people who maybe aren't familiar with you and your work, could you give us a background introduction mm-hmm. to who you are and what you do? Of course. So uh, I'm a Dutch historian. Uh, I studied history at Utrecht University. Utrecht is uh, in the middle of the Netherlands. It's a very small country anyway, you know. If you drive for two hours in any direction, you're uh, either in Germany, in Belgium, or in the North Sea. Um, But uh, yeah, I I studied history also at uh, UCLA in in Los Angeles. Then I thought about becoming an academic, uh, but changed my mind because academia these days is not a very healthy and wonderful place, I'd say. Uh, you know, I, I've got a lot of friends who've, who've gone into uh, the world of, of getting a PhD, etc., and uh, 
who've got a burnout in, in return. Mm. Um, so I went into journalism and um, sort of worked at a traditional Dutch newspaper for one year. It's sort of like the guardian of the Netherlands called the Volkskrant. Um, and that that wasn't really my thing either. And uh, at that point in my career, I was very, very lucky because a new journalism platform was founded called The Correspondent. And uh, they asked me to join. And the, the idea of The Correspondent is that we basically ignore the news. We, we think that the news is not very good for you. you know? It mainly focuses on exceptions, on things that go wrong, on corruption, crises, terrorism, violence, etc., etc. And so if you watch a lot of the news every day and you only keep hearing about these exceptions, um, you might get a pretty pessimistic view of, of humanity, of human nature and of history and, and reality. And um, there's even a term for this, actually. It's, it's, it's called mean world syndrome. That's what psychologists call it. So you really become more cynical if you uh, follow too much of the news. Uh, we try to get away from that and, and to make a, a form of journalism that helps you to understand the structural forces that govern our lives. It's not, the, it's not the same as just focusing on the good news. You know, It's not like, oh, we report that a new panda is born every day in the zoo or something like that. Um, it's more... I don't know, having a more realistic, more accurate view of reality. So sometimes that's, that's you know, quite <laughs> means focusing on, on really bad stuff like climate change or the extinction of species. But it's also about the decline of global poverty and child mortality and, and about the people who are already coming up with solutions to some of our biggest challenges. So, um, yeah, I, my work is really a product of that environment, you know, of, of, of these friends and colleagues who who don't start the day with, okay, what is the worst thing that happened today? And we got to report on that, but more on what are the big challenges? Who are the people thinking about the solutions? What are they doing right now? And why can we be hopeful? It's it's interesting because um, I was thinking about as you're talking, like I wonder if it, maybe this is too much of a basic kind of observation to make, but as children, I feel like children are generally lots more optimistic. And then as you start to get older and you kind of have to, take more stock of the news and things going on around you you do become mm -hmm. you do become cynical i don't know if it is as baseline as that or if there is something to do with just mm -hmm. getting a broader understanding of the world but i definitely think especially in this pandemic right at the beginning i was obsessed with reading the news and my mental health couldn't have been worse it was like i couldn't i couldn't inject more bad news into my veins if i <laughs> if i tried and so mm -hmm. i've really taken a concerted effort now to like block out time to find out like the main thing that's going on but not sort of be I think it's the 24-hour continuum of information that's really striking mm -hmm. and really impacting us um at the minute yeah yeah I think that's that's really really true you know the thing you said about that sometimes kids you know are wiser than us adults yeah uh it's it's true in, in many domains of life I'd say for example um uh in terms of eating meat, I think that's that's one of the best examples. You know, if you, if you explain to uh, you know a child of five or six year old, you know that thing you're eating right now, that's actually the animal. You know, it's it's a pig or a horse. You know, animals that you love, and they're like horrified, like what, <laughs> etc. So their their intuition is is very simple and very basic. And then us adults, we come up with all kinds of complex rationalizations to basically say, well, it's still fine, you know, the way we treat animals, um, to get away from this very basic truth, this very basic intuition that kids have, which is, no, it's not okay. Um, and yeah, sometimes being an adult means coming up with all these 
complex ways to basically lie to ourselves, right? And and if we just <laughs> listen to our kids a bit, a bit more often, we, uh, I don't know, we can maybe uh, accept the, the more important truth. So this actually, because you're talking kind of about instinct, and I guess how often we ignore instincts, it, it leads quite well onto one of the things that you wish you were taught in school. Um, but what I love about mm. when I asked you this question, and you're the only person who said this, and I don't know if that's because maybe in the Netherlands, <laughs> you're schooling so much better, but you were like, in general, I'm quite happy with everything they taught me in school. Every other person <laughs> that I've had on has been like, oh my God, I wish I'd learned this, this, this. And, really? and you were like, I'm pretty content. Do you think that is just that your schooling is so much better <laughs> than here in the UK? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just skeptical about schooling anyway. So I was relatively happy during my, my childhood, uh, both in, in primary school and secondary school. And I don't think I learned that much, but I don't think that's, I mean, I don't blame anyone for that because I don't really believe in this whole process of i don't know top-down education where there are people at the top who have knowledge that they try to implant in your brains it just doesn't really work does it so in terms of languages you know i wish i my my french and german was better because that would be really really useful right now i could read german newspapers and then french newspapers etc I, i would really love to be able to do that but then again i think i think about how how could they have taught me that well it would never have worked right because i I thought it was completely boring mm. and pointless. I didn't have the intrinsic motivation back then to to learn it. Now, my English is, um, well, hopefully you agree, a bit better. Um, but why is it, is it better? Because I uh, love computer games, you know? I was uh, I had a lot of highly specialized knowledge of computer games like Command & Conquer and uh, Call of Duty, and I don't know. And you learn a lot, you know? Uh, they don't translate uh, most of these games into Dutch, Um and obviously, if you want to do multiplayer and communicate with players around the globe, you you know you got to learn English, and and so that's how I learned it, not not from school. So I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical anyway about what school can teach us. I think it's more about creating an environment where kids can flourish and you know follow their own curiosity and develop their intrinsic motivation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm just very skeptical about education and schooling anyway. <laughs> So this, I love this because this is what you said. You said exactly that, that you wish you had more freedom to follow your own curiosity and rely on your intrinsic motivation, which ties imperfectly about what you're saying about children kind of having this gut feeling about something and then having to unlearn mm-hmm. the gut feeling and kind of distrust your own compass when it comes to things. And I think I've learned that growing up. It does a real disservice because then as an adult, you're having to go backwards into your trying to get in touch with your inner self or all of, all of this kind of like language that we use, which is basically just trying to learn our basic instincts to get again because we are mm-hmm. unlearned them in school. So if you had to imagine, I guess, a new infrastructure or a new way of schooling, like, do you think that homeschooling is the way forward? Do you think we do need infrastructure? Do you just think it's the subject and the way that it's kind of curated is wrong? Or is it the whole format needs to be? Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, homeschooling seems to me a recipe for extreme inequality, mm. right? Because the kids with parents who have a lot of time and resources at their hands, you know, will get much better schooling than those who who don't have it. So I'm very, very much against homeschooling, actually. I think it's very important that, you know, from a very early age, you know, preferably already before primary school, that kids learn that there is such a thing as society, right? That there is a place called the school where kids from all different backgrounds meet and learn and socialize and, and, and you know, communicate with each other. 
Um, I think the problem with many of our schools today is that they're so incredibly segregated. So at a very early age, we say, okay, you are the smart kids, you're the not so smart kids. You're the kids from the good neighborhoods, you're the kids from the not very good neighborhoods. And and we also sort our kids, uh, you know, um, on uh, on age. So 11 years old altogether, 12 years old altogether, et cetera. And then some boarding schools are even worse when they also separate the genders. I mean, it's crazy, right? That's not what real life is like. In society, everything is mixed. So schools should always be mixed. It should also be mixed because... It, it, it's got to prepare you for real life, right? Um, it's uh, if you think about the the phenomenon of bullying, for example, we we tend to assume I used to assume at least that bullying is this natural part of childhood that it's very tragic, but it just it just happens because kids are like that. The kids are just nasty and mean, and uh, yeah, they just they just bully, and there are obviously ways to try and combat this tendency so there are a lot of programs so that you can teach kids how to deal with that or i don't know uh, to teach bullet kids uh, i don't know how to defend themselves blah 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 but the assumption is always the same is that bullying is just a natural part of childhood i used to believe that turns out it's it's, that's bullocks Mm. you know (laughs) if you study the sociology of bullying it tends it seems to be a product of very specific institutional circumstances. So there's a lot of bullying in certain schools and almost no bullying in other schools. Um, So where does bullying happen? Well, it happens in so-called total institutions. Total institutions are places where you can't really leave. Um, There are strict rules. There's a strict hierarchy. um, And um, there's also a strict schedule uh, of what you're going to do on on a certain day. Um, There's basically a lack of freedom. Now, the perfect example here is obviously the prison. And we know that there's a huge amount of prison, uh, bullying in prisons. Same is true for nursing homes, you know, sort of old-fashioned nursing homes. There's a lot of bullying there as well because, again, people can't leave. There's a strict hierarchy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, obviously, a lot of schools are like that as well, especially the classic boarding school, right? I've always found it ironical that, um, you know, a lot of people... uh, read Harry Potter and a lot of parents read Harry Potter and then sent their kids to boarding school, <laughs> which is very tragical because we know from a huge amount of evidence that, you know, they're, they're, uh, people pay a high psychological price after from, from, for going to such a to, uh, total institution, right? Where you can't leave, where you have to stay all year, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole speciality in, in psychiatry that, is, uh, that focuses on boarding school survivors, right? Doesn't mean that, you know, everyone suffers from it, but relatively to other schools, you know, there are way more, way more people who, uh, who suffer from that. Um, can we turn this around? Yes, of course you can. You know, you can just design your institutions in a very different way. So the, one of the most important things you got to do is mix the ages. Um, if people from different ages are, are all together in a classroom, uh, preferably, you know, from age four to eight, eight uh, age 18 or something like that, um, uh, most, most of bullying disappears. But it's even better if you also mix all the other things, you know, mix gender, mix, uh, I don't know, academic level or something like that. Um, and if you visit those kind of schools, um, you know, time and time again, you will see that bullying has pretty much disappeared uh, because Basically, everyone is weird. Everyone is strange. You know, there's no norm anymore. Mm. A- anymore, there's uh, you can't be young anymore relative to the rest. You know, you can't be that one ten-year-old kid in a class of you know where everyone's eleven or twelve, or you can't be that one kid who has this really peculiar interest in 
I don't know, space travel or something like that, where everyone else thinks that's uninteresting. Um, if, if you create an environment where everyone is strange and weird, then um, yeah, uh, bullying pretty much disappears, which I, I found absolutely shocking to discover because that means that for such a long time, we've been optimizing our institutions and our schools for bullying, basically. We've designed... Um, them in that way ourselves and it doesn't have to be this way yeah well i wonder if is there some cynical advantage in having these structures where bullying can work because does that reinforce the sort of like hierarchical structures that we have more broadly in society in terms of if we're looking back at like um the way that we organize class systems and the way that we organize genders and races mm -hmm. do you think that there is some intention mm -hmm. of creating um that dynamic in schools because then it it carries on in society or do you think is that me being really cynical again about <laughs> the the intention hmm. of why these, no i think why things are set up like that i think that's spot on i think you're absolutely right um we have a si system that produces or reproduces uh a an elite over and over again you know what drives me nuts is that when we talk about quality quality of education. So if you if you look at scientific studies where, where the quality of education is measured, um, you know, the way they measure it is uh, they look at how kids perform on standardized tests. But these standardized tests are not neutral measurements of, you know, intelligence or something like that. I mean, psychologists up until this day still don't really know what intelligence is or you know, <laughs> where creativity comes from. I mean, there's a libraries full of books that have been written about it, but it seems to me that we're, that we're still not really sure. Um, well, let's put it like this. The people who've, who I've learned from the most in my life, um, you know, who I think are the smartest, smartest people I've ever met, they've pretty much all been a total failure in school. Mm. You know, they, they didn't do well on standardized tests. They, um, they thought just in general school was awful and they thought it was boring and they just wanted to basically follow their own curiosity. Uh, I'm doing a, a podcast here in the Netherlands with a, with a good friend and colleague of mine. And he's, he, I think he's literally the smartest person I've ever met. And he, uh, you know, he uh, didn't do very well in secondary school. He barely managed to finish it and then tried like university like four or five times or something like that. And totally crashed and played World of Warcraft for like two years. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, pulled himself up by his own bootstraps, I guess, and, and started a career in journalism. And, I mean, he has such an unusual mind. You know, he doesn't think like other people. He's much more autonomous. And um, and I, I think that makes him much more creative than than other people. And it make, makes him able, helps him to ask questions that other people just don't ask. So... A lot of what we call education is 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 about conformity, right? Is basically about they 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 socialize you, they 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 teach you, um, you know, what are the the right questions, what are the right answers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not saying that's all wrong because I mean we gotta live together in a society, so some form of socialization, I think that's that's healthy. Um, but I've also always find it striking that indeed, if you meet someone who's truly fascinating and who asks all these unusual questions, and you 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 ask them about their career in school and they yeah they almost always have a story of um well a story where they say well that was actually a total failure in school one of the things that i loved in utopia for realists the most was the section about um bullshit jobs and how 
mm-hmm. we kind of have again it's about this conditioning the socialization and I wonder like if we were given the freedom to explore intuition like you said in school and be curious would we ever really choose to do some of the jobs that are kind of um heralded in society as being really useful or really powerful Mm -hmm. or worth a lot of money and i it was so great Mm -hmm. to read that because i've always found that i mean i did a a podcast with ash sarker and it was really funny because i was talking about robots and their invention and why are they not like you know why does that mean we have more free time and she was like you're talking about marx's uh fragment of machine theory and i basically like butchered this theory that's (laughs) really famous but i hadn't really realized um but i i -hmm. i would love to know more about have you always had this kind of really good at like a really visceral understanding of the way that society kind of I feel like your mind looks at things in a really interesting way um and when I Hmm. and when when I read the book and especially when you're talking about leisure time and like how capitalism kind of like spears through all of our again it's the natural intuition to want to rest to want to play to want to do all of these things um did you have any kind of awakening or do you think that you have always had quite like a good ability to look on these cracks in society and where we're kind of governed invisibly, I guess, by things that we've been socialized to believe? Hmm. hmm. Um, I think I just learned a lot from other people. So uh, that part of my book, Utopia for Realists, was very much influenced by the work of the anthropologist David Graeber, who sadly passed away last year. And I think that anthropologists often have the ability to look at a certain phenomenon or certain issues from the child's perspective, I guess. Mm. They're, they're able to come into a society and ask the more basic questions. So, for example, one of the fundamental, fundamental questions of life is what is wealth? You know, what is truly worthwhile? And who are the real wealth creators? You know, who are the people who contribute the most? And... At the beginning of the 21st century, you know, we've ended up in a world where we we give a very crazy answer to that question. So we say, okay, the people who who are the real wealth creators are those who sit in offices all day, who write reports no one ever wants to read, who send emails to people they don't like, who come up with destructive financial products that basically destroy a lot of wealth, uh, who come up with uh, algorithms that let us click more on ads or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the great tragedies of our time is that so much of our talent is wasted. There are so many smart people working in marketing or in management or in the financial sector. Um, and we call them wealth creators. But, you know, if, you, if, if say, an anthropologist from Mars would come here and study us and study, for example, the tribe of <laughs> bankers, you know, the, 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 the marching would say, well, this is very strange. You know, these people think they're contributing to something. Well, oh, it's very clear to, you know, any outside observer is that they're basically destroying a lot of wealth. But somehow, you know, they've been reframed as the real wealth creators. So, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's very often uh, good to zoom out and, and go back to, yeah, to sort of your more initial assumption assumptions and think about, okay, who are the real wealth creators? And one way to to ask that question is, okay, what happens if certain people go on strike? So in the book, I give the example of garbage collectors going on strike. It's happened multiple times in history. I I give the example of garbage collectors going on strike in New York uh, at the end of the 60s. And, uh, you know, the strike lasted for, for a couple of days. Then the state of emergency had to be declared because it turns out, you know, a big city really can't do without the garbage collectors. Then I wondered, has it ever happened in all of world history that the bankers went on strike? You know, perhaps there's one example. Turns out there is. In, in 1970 in Ireland, um, around that same time, actually, um, uh, 
uh, there was a strike of bankers because they were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation. <laughs> now, the strike started and all the experts said, okay, this is going to be a disaster. Um, you know, the, the economy will crash and we'll really pay for this. Um, the strike started, lasted for six months and nothing much happened. You know, the economy just kept growing. After six months, the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right, we'll get back to work. And um, if you ask people today in Ireland about the Irish banking strike of, of, the 90s and, of 1970, most people won't remember even if they've lived through it because it just didn't make much of an impact. Um, and I think that's, um, that's a nice way to sort of go back to that more fundamental question of who are the real wealth creators? I, yeah, I remember reading that. And it's so funny because as you're saying about ideology and the way that we believe things, like it, it of course that makes complete sense. And when you think about sort of like what I remember when I read uh, the first time I read Yuval Noah Harari and um, his book mm. about how everything is kind of created, you know, and everything's made up. There's no such thing as law. There's really no such thing as human rights. And you suddenly start to break down and realize just how deep we are into these social structures that are completely fabricated. And it doesn't take very long or much time to really figure out, you know, what's crucial. And we've seen it in the pandemic, you know, finally people are saying key workers are carers and nurses and teachers and all the people that are really mm -hmm. undervalued in society. Um, Mm -hmm. When you're watching that, do you think that this will have a longer lasting impact on how we view, like what you say, the real people who are the real money makers and the people who are the change makers? Do you think this pandemic is going to have a long lasting impact or, or do you think that we might just kind of go back to how it was before? Hmm. Well, I certainly hope so. And I think that there are also a lot of hopeful signs. So I thought one well, striking moment at the beginning of the pandemic in April uh, last year was when the Financial Times, which is not known as a, you know, a leftist revolutionary newspaper or anything. I mean, it's basically the paper that's being read by elites from around the globe, right? And the, the, the very rich politicians and entrepreneurs uh, read the Financial Times every day. But at the beginning of April last year, the Financial Times said, now is the time to, quote, and this is a literal quote, reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years. And think about things like, one, a universal basic income, two, higher taxes on the rich, and three, a more um, activist, ambitious role for the state in combating great challenges like pandemics and climate change, etc. Um, so yeah, reverse the policy direction of the last 40 years. And it's not, again, it's, it's not some left-wing publication that was saying that, it was the Financial Times. Mm. And that was when I thought, okay, something is changing here. This, this may be seen, this, this specific editorial, as, as one, of the, uh, one of the signs that the neoliberal era was ending. Because obviously for 40, 50 years, we've been in the, in the neoliberal era uh, where you know, many people believe that the government was the problem, that we need to privatize as much as possible, just uh, let the free market do its magic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, inequality is no problem as as long as you know everyone is um, as long as as we have a lot of innovation or something like that. Um, this ideology has been incredibly powerful, and um, well, we've seen the results in terms of a uh, total climate breakdown, massive inequality uh, growing around the globe, and um, obviously, you know, a lot of people. You know, have believed that for a long time, but now for the Financial Times to be saying it, that was that was very striking to me and interesting. And um, indeed, if you look at who are the more exciting and influential economists today, 
it's very different from 10 years ago you know 10 years after 10 years ago after the financial crash economists and governments were obsessed with national debt you know that we uh needed to go into a period of austerity because otherwise we would give our grandchildren a, a national debt that was way too high, that somehow that was seen as the, <laughs> the biggest injustice. Um, so much has changed since then. You know, governments are borrowing, incre borrowing incredible amounts of money right now. If you, if you even look at Joe Biden in the United States, you know, he is, he is like in a total different universe than Don Obama was. Um, what is it, 10 years ago? Um, Obama, I mean, we all love his speeches, of course, but, you know, he was a pretty disappointing president, I'd say, with relatively unambitious plans. Um, if you now look at what Joe Biden is doing, it's incredible. You know, he's, he's doing what we call blitz politics, you know, one ambitious proposal after another. This American Rescue Plan, uh, you know, that they've just, uh, that has just gone through Congress. Congress. According to some estimates, it will half child mortality. Wow. I mean, half child mortality. That is incredible. Um, that for the first time in American history, they have a child benefit, you know? Um, you, you know, we in, in, in <laughs> I would say, almost say more civilized countries are already used to that. <laughs> but in, in the American context, it's really unique to just give free money to parents, basically, uh, to help them... Uh, raise their kids. It's going to have a massive impact. So all of these things, uh, the Financial Times talking about basic income, Joe Biden, you know, the most boring moderate this world has ever seen, suddenly implementing a, a bill that will halve child mortality. If you would have told me that when I was writing Utopia for Realists, I would have said, you're nuts. You know, that's never going to happen. But here we are. That's Well, that's really nice idea to think that things are like moving in that direction because it doesn't, it doesn't often feel like that. But um, I know that you're famously known for talking about universal basic income, both in Utopia for Realists and from your TED Talks. Um, and it's interesting because I guess it, it comes back to that same thread of giving people more credence than we do, whether that's believing children's own intuition, whether it's um, having faith in the fact that poorer people won't use money in a way that's going to be disruptive and actually that, that people want to better themselves and they want to help each other. And I feel like that's kind of mm -hmm. the crux of your of humankind. Is that right? Is that kind of um, the idea that we are much better, like humans in general, we're better than we've kind of been brought up to believe we are. Yes, indeed. So my last book, Humankind, is really about this very simple uh, revolutionary idea, which is that most people deep down are pretty decent. Um, you know, there's this old theory in Western culture that has been incredibly influential, which says that our civilization is only a thin veneer, only a thin layer. Um, and that as soon as, you know, something happens when, when a crisis strikes, that we revert to, you know, our true selves and that we turn out to be really horrible creatures. Uh, that deep down we're just nasty. Mm. Uh, that human nature is basically this dark, pit of <laughs> uh of terrible stuff um this idea comes back again and again and again you already see it among the ancient greeks uh thucydides the greek historian writing about what happened during the plague in athens or a civil war near Corcyra. he also said you know people really showed that they're basically monsters um if you look at orthodox christianity again you find this idea that people deep down are just sinners um, that there's something called original sin and that we 
need to be saved by uh, by Jesus or by God or something like that. Then you look at the Enlightenment philosophers of the 17th and the 18th century, and you would expect some kind of, uh, I don't know, some some discontinuity with Christian thought, but actually the opposite is true when you when you look at their views on human nature. So many of these Enlightenment philosophers had a really bleak view of human nature. Thomas Hobbes, the British philosophers philosopher argued that people deep down are just selfish, that in the state of nature, when we were nomadic and togetherers, we were engaging in a war of all against all, that life was just nasty, brutish and short, and that therefore we need hierarchy, we need authority, we need a so-called Leviathan, an all-powerful ruler who keeps us in check, basically, who makes sure that we don't start slaughtering and murdering and killing each other. Um, that idea was very influential during the Enlightenment. It uh, was very influential when the founding fathers of the United States drafted the Constitution. Uh, John Adams once wrote an essay with the title, All Men Would Be Tyrants If They Could. And therefore, we need some kind of balance of power with the co Congress and, and uh, House of Representatives and the Senate and, and the Supreme Court so that all these selfish people can sort of keep each other in check and there's a certain balance in the system. Uh, then, you know, uh, 19th century evolutionary uh, theory uh, uh, arises, um, which quickly becomes social Darwinism, you know, the notion that uh, life is, is basically a, a race between species and it's often the selfish and the more aggressive species that survive. Um, and then modern capitalism arises. And, and if, if you would say anything about, you know, the capitalist dogma is that people deep down are just selfish and we need to deal with that. Or as Gordon Gekko says in Wall Street, greed is good. You know, it's actually good. Uh, you know, your prime minister seems to agree with that. Mm. It's, it's, I guess, the reason why I, I haven't been vaccinated yet. And, <laughs> and you guys have. Anyway, that's another subject. So my point is this idea comes back again and again and again and again in left-wing versions, in right-wing versions, in religious uh, versions of the idea, uh, atheistic versions, veneer theory, the idea that people deep down are just selfish. Civilization is only a thin veneer. It's it's almost like the founding idea of Western culture. And in my book, Humankind, I, <laughs> I, I argue that it's wrong, um, that, it's, that it's really not true, that people deep down are pretty decent, that we've evolved to cooperate and to connect with each other. And that if you truly grasp that idea, it means that we can do everything differently. We can design our schools in a different way. We can design our prisons in a different way. We can design the workplace in a different way. We can basically you know, start a revolution. <laughs> so people may think, oh, that sounds like a very warm and fuzzy idea. Oh, people are kind, blah, blah, blah. Um, doesn't seem very threatening. Well, actually, um, if people start trusting each other, uh, those at the top become uncomfortable because it basically means that maybe we don't need that hierarchy. You know, maybe you don't need all these elites at the top saying uh, what we should do. Um, so yeah, it's a very simple, but also quite revolutionary idea. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
It is, but it makes so much sense because it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we've had this understanding of ourselves for so long that we are fundamentally selfish and cruel and that if we had the chance, you know, it would be anarchy and we'd whatever, then mm-hmm. you do start to, some part of that becomes part of who you are and part of your like self-belief where, and, and like distrust, I was mm-hmm. just about to say, I think distrust is one of the most damaging things we can have. And, and I think it's ravaged us even more over the last, like in my lifetime, like the sense of community that people have between neighbors, for instance, or like the, the conversation people don't talk. I mean, I live in London, so I think it's even more heightened here, but there is a real sense of like you're out for yourself, even on like the daily commute. So you, I feel like you're always in sort of like a fight or flight response frame of mind because it's mm-hmm. as if everyone is a, mm-hmm. is a threat to you. Whereas if we all let that guard down and we all mm-hmm. kind of spoke to each other and like, I just feel like everyone's even just in that small act of trusting to be able to smile at someone, people's mental health would be ex- mm-hmm. exponentially improved in a matter of days, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what are people how have people's responses been then when when you put this idea because also the, the truth is like the people that will find this fundamentally the most revolutionary are the ones like Boris Johnson the people in power the people that really feel like they've got something to lose if if our status quo changes so I mean amongst your peers I imagine people think it's a great idea but have you had anyone sort of really angry about <laughs> you saying this <laughs> I think that's a great point indeed um if people start trusting each other, then that means that we don't need the kings and the queens and the prime ministers and the presidents, etc. It means that, well, maybe we can move to a much more democratic, egalitarian society, you know, where people basically govern their own affairs, etc. And in the book, I try to give many examples of exactly that happening. And it makes those at the top very uncomfortable, indeed, because, it, yeah, it, it, it means they could be out of a job. Um, so yeah, I've received <laughs> quite some pushback, uh, I guess in that respect. Um, the other thing though, to keep in mind here is that, um, you know, I went to Davos this one time, uh, you know, the, 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 gathering of the very rich and powerful people, uh, who go there to discuss the state of the world, I guess. They talk about a lot of wonderful things like feminism and philanthropy and, and, um, climate change, blah, blah, blah. But they don't really talk about the elephant in the room, which is their own tax evasion, their own corrupt business models, their own tax avoidance, their, you know, their way they're basically profiting from other pe- other people's labor in a very nasty way. Um, then you would suspect that if you go there, you meet these people who are engaged in some kind of conspiracy or something like that, that they're all very selfish and, you know, they <laughs> that they know what they're doing. But... The reality could be more different. You go there and you meet a lot of quite wonderful people, you know, who are absolutely lovely to you. And you think, well, we could actually become friends. Um, So that is, I guess, the disturbing thing that uh, people have have a, are really good at lying to themselves, you know, where they are incredibly rich. They uh, have very problematic business models. They make a huge amount of money. They don't pay their taxes, etc. But they give a little bit to philanthropy each year and they still feel, you know, I'm a good person. You know, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with me there. 
I was about to say about the good person thing, because I think this is something that maybe is the fault of fairy mm-hmm. tales or the fact that we kind of believe that, you know, um, if you do a bad thing, you're a bad person and that you can only be inherently good or bad. Mm-hmm. And then we get really confused about, say, we have a close relationship with someone that maybe votes very differently from us or perhaps holds views that are really abhorrent. It can be then really difficult to be like, but they're mm-hmm. really kind to me. And I don't know if this is like, Mm. at fault of something that as children we're told you can only be good or bad and so we're really scared to point out badness in in especially in people that we love for fear of casting them then as an evil yeah and yeah, it and yeah. it's so binary yeah. and i wonder if we could some, somehow say like you're saying you're a lovely billionaire but being a billionaire is really unethical so you can't you know it <laughs> i feel like we need better language around what it means to be kind and be generous but the fact that people are really complicated and I just don't think there's enough room Mm. and I think that like online it it makes it even more difficult because as you say like I could have a conversation in a pub with someone who's super conservative and have a really lovely conversation Mm -hmm. but if I bumped into them on Twitter for example I might end up having an argument about Mm -hmm. whatever it might be Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's uh, if that conditioning is also maybe rooted straight back to that thing you said right at the beginning about um, being I guess forced into groups that are like you that look like you that think like you from a really young age so much so that then we Mm -hmm. we can't really deal with not even conflict but with I guess coming together in a way that has like a fruitful ending Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I can't agree more perhaps the troubling thing with humans is that um, we very often do quite bad things in the name of the good Um, I've got one chapter in my new new book uh, about um, German soldiers during the Second World War who kept fighting in 1944 and 1945, even though it was clear they were going to lose the war. You know, the the Allied were advancing after D-Day. The Russians were coming from the east. You know, it was basically a lost cause. But these Germans kept fighting very fanatically. They were much more effective than Allied soldiers, by the way, in terms of casualty counts, on average around 50% more effective. This was like the, the best army in the history of the world. And so... Allied psychologists couldn't understand it. Why are these soldiers still fighting like crazy? You know, have they been brainwashed or something like that? Are they really all these anti-Semites? Have they been, you know, going crazy because of Nazi ideology? And so they started interviewing prisoners of war and then discovered that actually the vast majority of these soldiers were not fighting because of Nazi ideology or because they were brainwashed or something like that. No, they were fighting for their friends. They were fighting for comradeship. comradeship. Uh, they they really didn't want to let their friends down. And the German army command knew this. So the German army command was very careful not to separate friends. You know, if, for example, a unit was was pulled from the front, they were very careful to, to keep those who had been fighting for a long time together, to keep them together, basically. Um, and... That is obviously disturbing mm. uh, because it's a phenomenon that we see so often is that we do bad things because we don't want to let our own group down and we don't want to let our friends down. I mean, a simple example of that was mask wearing, which especially in the United States be- became this polarized issue. And so a lot of people ask me, well, Rodger, uh, how can you still believe that most people deep down are decent if you've got all these p- selfish people who, refers, who refuse to wear a mask? But that's obviously not what was happening. It wasn't selfishness. It's just that be- that wearing a mask became a symbol of the liberal tribe. And so obviously, as a conservative, you wouldn't wear a mask because you would basically saying to your own group, well, 
I think you're wrong. Uh, you know, I don't want to be part of you of that group anymore. Um, and that's that's really the dark side of human nature. Our incredible groupishness, our tribal nature, is that yeah, when we very much feel part of our own group, we we start to dislike the other group. That's why I've got one chapter in the book about empathy as well. You know, we tend to assume that empathy is the solution to all of our problems. Uh, but the problem here is that empathy often works as a spotlight. You know, you focus on one person often or one specific group and the rest of the world fades into into darkness, right? You you don't really see that anymore. And so then you, you often get these cycles of empathy and vengeance and uh, that can go on and on. If you look at the Australia-Palestinian conflict, for example, I've often believed that there's not, it's, it's not that there's, not enough empathy in the Middle East. There's there's too much empathy, right? Because you feel a lot of empathy for your own side and then you want vengeance and it goes on and on and on and on. So you're stuck in these cycles. And what you need there is perhaps the ability to zoom out and to uh, yeah look at the whole situation from well, what psychologists call a more compassionate perspective where you're not really feeling for the other person, but where you are recognizing someone else's suffering, but also saying, you know what, your suffering is your suffering, it's not mine. I want to help, but you know, I'm not going to be swept away here in 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 all your in all your feelings. That's that's you, you know. Uh, I've got my own perspective. Um so yeah, very long answer. I hope it makes sense. No, it does make sense, but it makes me think it's interesting because on the one hand, um it makes so much sense that we need to kind of disseminate some of the groups and the labels that we've kind of um, created and have existed for so long but at the same time it sounds as though there does have mm. to be some form of um, group nature or some segregation because it, it there's just too many people and too many ideologies and you're never there is never going to be a planet where every single person is you know advocating for the same thing and has the same belief so is it that there just needs to yeah. be a shuffling or like how does that what does that look like practically, I, I guess? I mean, it's a massive question, but mm-hmm. if we're saying, you know, oh, mm-hmm. we've, we've got to stop keeping everyone in these echo chambers and separating and polarizing all those things, but at the same time, there's just too many of us to be one united mm-hmm. front. For, so how does that, what would your idea of, of, you know, social structures and community, do you have a, mm-hmm. an imagined idea for how that would reform? Hmm. You know, what I've often found strange is that you've got these liberal parents who, on the one hand, say things like, uh, you know, no no person is illegal, we are all equal, you know, <laughs> we got to stay in contact, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and then on the other hand, they send their kids to private schools mm. where, you know, these kids are in a very limited environment and may, mainly meet other people who are exactly like them. I don't know. That seems to be <laughs> very weird. Obviously, you got to start at a very early age to basically say, okay, you know, society is diverse, so schools got to be diverse as well. It's, I mean, it's very simple, but somehow we, I don't know, we 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 do pretty much the opposite of what is necessary. Uh, obviously, a, a good school should be a highly diverse environment, you know, with people from all different kind of backgrounds, rich and poor, ethnically diverse. Uh, so that people, uh, kids learn from a very early age that, you know, uh, people can be different and that's fine. One of the oldest, most robust theory in psychology is, is contact theory. Um, so already in the 1950s, psychologists were wondering, 
what is the best medicine we have against prejudice, against hate, and against racism? And um, some people argue that, you know, perhaps just putting people into contact is the best medicine. Well, that may sound obvious, but as you know, everything is obvious once you know the answer. So um, uh, people actually had to do the research here, and we now have hundreds and hundreds of studies into contact theory. And it turns out, yes, it, it more or less works like that. If you build diverse environments, then um, people become more, much more sympathetic to people who are different. And it also spills over in other domains of life. So if you uh, live in a more diverse neighborhood, you know, a more ethnically diverse neighborhood, you're also more open to uh, different forms of diversity. I don't know, ideological diversity, for example. And um, again, it's a very simple message. A, a, a child would understand this, right? That it's not very healthy to put <laughs> to put all people from similar backgrounds, uh, backgrounds in the same classroom and then hope that they will grow up as very caring cosmopolitan kids or something like that. Well, obviously, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Um, so what you got to do is basically design for diversity. And the only way to do that is to do it uh, together, you know, on a on a collective level, um, it's it's very. I mean, I I am sympathetic to to uh, often it's it's hard to to do this as an individual parent, right? Because maybe you don't live in the right neighborhood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but there are, you know, you can uh, vote for political parties that actually want to implement the laws that make this easier, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it seems to me the most simple and straightforward solution. To, to me, it totally does. And it was funny what you said about um, everything sounds simple when you know the answer, because that's how I felt when I was reading Utopia for Realists. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, of course, this makes complete sense. Universal basic income makes total sense. Like Everything to me was like, this just is so obvious. I think the problem is it, getting everyone around to the same mindset that everything is better for everyone when everything's better for everyone, rather mm. than this fear that I guess elite people have and cer certain circles have that if I give something mm -hmm. to them I lose out whereas actually it's it's about reframing I guess it's just such a capitalist mentality but it's how do you get those people to recognize that their lives would be better in a different way than they could ever imagine if they didn't subscribe to this elitism now, I, I actually was sent to a private school when I was younger because my parents again made that decision think, yeah, 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 thinking yeah. that you know that was going to be so much better for me and now as an adult I've had that same realization like I can't say I believe in all of these things and then if I have children send them to private school I just wouldn't do that now you know having adjusted my mindset but lots of people that I went to school with will never ever even think to enter this line of questioning because sometimes you're so far removed from day-to-day -day society it's like I don't know how you bridge that gap because there is just a group they're like a completely different echelon of mm -hmm. society that wouldn't even engage in a conversation around this topic and wouldn't even think to read a book like yours um and I guess it's like mm -hmm. until they and it's the same with money. It's the same with climate change. It's always the same. It's how do you pierce that top fraction and get them to somehow mm. join ranks? Uh, because I feel like everyone mm. else would join ranks, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's so much to say about this. So what I've tried to do in my work, and also in Utopia for Realists, is to use a language that appeals to a broader segment of the population, right? I guess that people especially on the left or, or progressives are often very good at convincing people who are already, <laughs> you know, mm. who are already convinced, right? They're very good at preaching to the choir. Um, and the challenge is obviously is to, um, 
is that an expression in English? Sort of broaden the church? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, to uh, to get a, to get a bigger audience and to actually convince people. And so there there are, there are a couple of ways how you can do this. One one way is to use the technique that psychologists call moral reframing. Um, so there's one fascinating book written by a psychologist called Jonathan Haidt, uh, The Righteous Mind, where he says that um, morality is actually quite diverse. So people have sort of different. There, 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 there are a couple of pillars of morality, and progressives tend to rely on different pillars than, than conservatives. So, for example, for conservatives, things like loyalty are very important, or um, stability, uh, where for progressives, things like um, caring for each other or freedom are more important. But sometimes what you can do is to to take an idea, say universal basic income, and pitch it in different ways. So you can pitch basic income and say, well, we got to care for other people. You know, poverty is horrible. Let's eradicate poverty. Let's let's help all these poor people uh, so that they'll uh, be able to decide for themselves how they want to live their lives and, and have more free lives, right? That's a very sort of liberal, progressive way of pitching the idea. But you could also pitch the idea in a more conservative way where you say, look, we're the best country on earth, right? Um, we're going to be the first ones who implement this very exciting idea, universal basic income, just because, you know, we're far ahead of the others. Or where you say, look, society is a mess right now. We've got people, people living on the streets. It's incredibly unstable. It's not healthy, etc. We got to bring more stability. If, if we make sure that there's a floor in the income distribution, um, Everyone will benefit. Something like that. I mean, I'm not saying I'm the I'm the best at at, at pitching the, this idea in all kinds of different ways, but I think the idea makes sense. Is that you can think about how you can, yeah, broaden the appeal of a certain idea, and that's what I've tried to do uh, quite a bit in my books. So um, one argument that I make over and over again is that eradicating poverty is not just good for your conscience; it's also good for your wallet. You know, it's poverty is actually hugely expensive. Mm. Uh, we spend a lot of on on healthcare and the judicial system and the policing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and we all pay for that. It's uh, it's it's not good for you if your neighbor is really poor. If your neighbor is doing better, you'll be doing better as well. Um, and that that may actually um, reminds me of this book that was published this year by um, Heather McGee. I don't know if you've seen it. She's an American author. She published a book, The Sum of Us, uh, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Um, I think it's really brilliant, actually. Um, she, she makes the point that what, what very often happens and what blocks our progress is that people both on the right and on the left have this zero-sum mindset where they think that our wealth is just... Um, well, it's limited. If if someone gets more, then someone else, by definition, has to get less, right? This, by the way, Donald Trump was totally zero sum, totally zero sum. What, what he described as a good deal is a, is a deal where he was winning and someone else was losing. Mm. He had a total zero sum worldview. Now, disturbingly, I think that also quite a, pe a few people on the left and progressive have become zero sum in their thinking. So, for example, and this is this is more controversial, but I really agree with Heather McGee, is that a concept like white privilege is not a very helpful concept, perhaps, because it also explains the world in a zero-sum way. At least that's how it's perceived by a lot of white people, where they think, oh, 
so I have some kind of privilege that now I have to give up? Well, I don't know. That's not a great slogan. So what Heather, Heather McGee says, well, we, we got to talk about racism in a, in a different way and say how everyone pays for it. Obviously, you know, those people who directly suffer from racism, you know, black and brown people suffer way more. But in a way, we all suffer. We all have poisoned our society with racism because um, if people can't develop their talents because they're they're held back by racism, we all pay for that. It's an incredible waste of talent that we all suffer from. In the book, she gives this example of um, swimming pools in the United States. There was a period in American history when there were a lot of public swimming pools that were opened up. Now, in the 60s, during the civil rights movement, it became clear that these swimming pools had to become accessible to black and brown people as well. But what happened is that a lot of uh, cities and towns chose to just close down the swimming pool because they rather had that than that they had to share their swimming pool with with different people, right? Um, so they were basically willing to to hit themselves in the face um, instead of just, you know, <laughs> uh, living together. And I think that's an example of how this zero-sum mindset, where you, if you always think that if someone else is doing better, by definition, you're, you have to suffer that is so much holding us back. And it's, I think it's much more present on, on the conservative or the, or the right-wing side of the political spectrum, but it also happens on the other side. Uh, and so what we got to do, I guess, is to break free from that and say, hey, if we all work together, if we trust in each other, there, there's actually a society possible where we all live better lives. It's interesting because... Um What's funny is that I guess what you're saying is that you have to kind of appeal to the selfish side of people and see where they benefit. But then twofold to that, you're saying that had we not been conditioned to think in a selfish way in the first place, we wouldn't then have these mm -hmm. this like one sum reaction and we wouldn't subscribe to that. Is that what you mean? It's kind of like you've got to bake, break through each thing. So first of all, you have to appeal to this selfish sensibility that we have all been coached to believe that if I have, if I don't have, then someone else is going to get it. We're quite jealous. We control things like that. There's a distrust, all of those things. You kind of have to appeal to that mm -hmm. first in order to get people on side. And then once people see the benefits of this more selfless, more community-based mm -hmm. society, then we can be free from that cynical belief. You know, that um, one of my favorite mm -hmm. bits actually in Utopia for Realists is about the three homeless people in London. Um, and I think they give them like a certain mm -hmm. sum of money. Um, do you want to tell that mm -hmm. story? Because it's my favorite and it's a really nice one to end on. Do you mind doing that? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it's a good example of what can happen once you adopt this win-win mentality, right? And, and look at the world as a, as a, as a positive someplace. Um, so it started actually as a really small experiment. There were 13 homeless men who had been in the streets, in some cases for decades, and they, they had tried a lot, you know, and, and nothing was really working. Uh, none of the sort of the traditional approaches to solving homelessness. Uh, we're, help, uh, we're helping in, in, in these cases. Um, so what they said, you know what, we're already spending a lot of money anyway, so why not just give it to them? Why not just give them, say, £3,000 and see how they spend it? Maybe that'll do something. And the results were really extraordinary. So a year after the experiment, seven out of 13 of the men had a roof above their head and two more had applied for housing. Um, they were really frugal with the money. They spent it on quite sensible things like, a, I don't know, a dictionary or a hearing aid or, you know, one, one of the men to gardening classes. And 
what was perhaps most exciting or most fascinating is that the experiment actually saved money. Because if people are on the streets, you got to spend way, way more on them, you know, in terms of higher healthcare costs, higher policing costs, judicial costs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's incredibly inefficient, <laughs> homelessness. Same is true for poverty. I, I always like to say that we can't afford poverty. Poverty is too expensive. Um, and when you actually pull people out of poverty, you'll see that that's an investment that pays for itself. Uh, and this is exactly what they, what they showed in London. Now, what I love about this particular story is that um, it turned out to be contagious. So a couple of years ago, there was a woman in Vancouver, you know, in Canada, who uh, who read my book, actually, Utopia of Realists, and also was, you know, uh, struck by the story of of uh, the homeless experiment in London. And, that, and she thought, well, let's scale it up. Let's do it on a bigger scale and let's, uh, let's involve uh, scientists so that they can actually study what happens. And uh, that was actually uh, recently in the news. Uh, they've published the first results of giving, um, what is it? I think around... Five six thousand dollars to uh, homeless people in Vancouver, uh, and again they found the same results. And it's been really rigorously res- researched, and now they they want to scale it up. It turns out that the most efficient way of spending money on the homeless is to just give it to them, because <laughs> it's 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 as I always like to say, again, it's, poverty is just a lack of character, a lack of cash. You know, it's not a lack of character and. And if you give people the freedom to make their own choices in their lives, they they often will make very sensible choices. Um, and yeah, so what, what, it's it's uh, perhaps the most how do you say that in English? Sort of most gratifying mm. uh, part of my writing career so far is that you can just report on this story and that someone else becomes inspired by it and that it travels around the globe and it turns out to be contagious. Um, you know, that gives me a lot of hope. Well, I have to say, I think that your hope and the way that you write and the, and the way that you position things is really contagious. And, and I think you say that even um, in Utopia for Realists, like it's this mindset we have, if we believe, you know, that we can do it, then we will. And so I, mm-hmm. I think it, I, I love what you do. I absolutely love your book. I cannot wait to read Humankind. Um, and even talking to you today, you've just got that personality that's really optimistic. And it, I'm smiling right now. So it's such a lovely conversation. Um, so thank you for doing what you do. Mm. And it is contagious. <laughs> well, thank you. Is there anywhere that you want to like point people in the direction of or anything that you think people should be familiar with, apart from obviously your books and your work? And I know that you've got lots of um, video content. Is there anything specifically you'd love people to look out for? Oh, um, well, that's a good question. Well, because we were talking about it for quite a bit, I really love that book by by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us. Um, I would recommend anything written by by David Graeber, maybe especially his book uh, on bullshit jobs. Um, yeah, I guess it really helps people to think about what is wealth and what is worthwhile in my own life. Um, one other book that I would uh, perhaps recommend is uh, written by Bronnie Ware. Uh, what is the title? She's an Australian nurse who asked a lot of people who were under deathbed what they regretted the most. It's like the top five regrets of the dying. I think that's that's the title of the book. And it turns out that no one's saying, you know, my top one regret is that I've watched uh, too few PowerPoint presentations from my colleagues or that, that I didn't send enough emails or something like that. You know, it's always the same. People say, um, I work too much. You know, I spent too much time um, doing paid work. And perhaps most importantly, I wish I 
I, I had, had the courage to basically live my own life instead of doing what other people expected of me. Um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, that's also a very valuable insight and, and it, it, uh, it helps you to ask that very fundamental question is, you know, what, are, what is actually worthwhile? What is actually, how do I contribute something significant to society? And uh, I think it's good if people start asking that question from a very, <laughs> very early age and they, and if they keep continuing doing that. Totally. Well, thank you. I'm going to read, I've written and made a note of all those books, especially The Righteous Mind, because I think my boyfriend read that and told me that I had to read it and I hadn't got around to it, but I will add that. Story. Oh yeah, that's that's a fantastic book. Yeah. It, it it will be hard to get that book out of your head because you'll be very, how do you say that? Uh, distrustful of your own opinions after you've read that because Jonathan Haidt shows that we very often assume or we think that we um, have certain opinions because we, you know, we've actually thought rationally about it. But very often these res- these these arguments that we come up with are just rationalizations, and that it actually starts with our in- own intuition. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a disturbing book, but very fascinating. Yeah, I'm excited to read that. Well, oh, honestly, it's been such a pleasure. This hour's gone by in about five minutes for me. Um, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone, and I will see you next week. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.